we've been in a series called Church Life, and uh, uh, we have been looking at what the church could be if it was just overwhelmed by grace. What does it look like when a church community is forged by grace? You know, uh, it's no uh, secret, it's nothing new that there are a lot of complaints uh, by people who are not Christians towards the church. And a lot of the complaints are not legitimate, but a lot of the complaints are legitimate when church people are less than gracious, when they're less than welcoming, when they're less than loving, it undermines the mission of the church and what God's called us to do. And so we've been talking about church life. What does it look like for this church to be in this community to advance God's kingdom of grace? What kind of state of mind, state of heart, what kind of relationships do we need to have in order to reach people for Christ with his grace. Um, I have learned that churches do not just drift into this. It does, if, if anything, we drift away from it. And so we want to make sure that we're deliberate when we address uh, our place in our city and the calling that God has put on, on our church. Now, it is important that we all examine our hearts in this, and we're going to do that again this morning. And to start, I want, to, I want you to think of a particular friend or family member, if you're a Christian, a friend or a family member in your life, and when you think about them, you think, there is just no way he is going to find Jesus. Can you think of somebody in your life? Maybe where you think there's just no way. Or for those of you who are, who are not Christians, you might look at a, a friend who claims to be a Christian and, and you might think, that guy claims to be a Christian? I mean, he's still just so messed up. I mean, I think I will pass on this Christianity stuff because apparently it doesn't work. Anyone come to mind? You're like, yeah, you Matt Ortiz, right? I don't blame you for thinking that God's still definitely working on me. But then there are others of you who know better from personal experience. Your life has been drastically changed. You, you didn't want to have anything to do with God. You didn't want to have anything to do with church people. And you were thinking, you know what, this made-up God and all his Christians are self-righteous, judgmental idiots. Maybe at that time you were suffering in a broken world, and you were just angry. But then, <laughs> out of nowhere, out of nowhere, you experience supernatural grace. Out of nowhere, you experience supernatural love. And a, a switch flipped in your heart, in your mind, and God's truth became precious to you, and it was life-giving for you, a, a, a relief that you've been longing for, washed over you, and you were filled with hope that, that you could change, that your life can change. I mean, you were hit with the power of the greatest news that you ever heard, that Jesus lived for you and died for you to save you and, and to change you. And then you join the calling of so many others who are still in process of being renewed, and you're encouraging each other in this good news. And now you see 
that Jesus and his good news of who he is and what he's done, also known as the gospel, you realize the gospel can change anyone. Anyone. Because you realize it's all of grace. That's what you experienced in your life. And you don't have to pretend like you're better than you really are. You know that God loves you just the way you are, but he also loves you too much to let you remain as you are. And so his grace and his truth are still at work in your heart and life, and you, you just reflect on the evidence of God's grace and how you are changing, and you just shake your head, and, and you think, man, I mean, this is real. I mean, if God, if God can change me, he can change anyone. And that truth, that fills your heart with hope. Not only for your own life, but also those other people you may have been thinking about when you think, man, God cannot reach that guy. He's too far gone. We see, that the, we see this truth that God can change anyone, that the gospel can change anyone in this passage that, that, that we just read. And that's why it was so long because um, the God, God is interested in people's lives and wants to show us how people's lives are changed. And here's what we see if you're taking notes. We don't have slides, but... Uh, that's why we provide you with a, an outline so you can kind of track with us and, and, and wonder where we're at and all that. The first thing we see is that there are three very different people, people who are totally different than each other. And it's hard to imagine three people who are more different than these three. They were different, they were different ethnically. Lydia was from uh, Thyatira, and she's Asian. And, Asian, and the, the slave girl is a native Greek, and the jailer is a Roman, and they come from totally different worlds with totally different world views, different cultures, different values, different customs, completely different lives. And they're different economically. Lydia was, was a wealthy, very successful businesswoman. She was from Thyatira, but she also had a home in Philippi. And she, she, was like a, she was like a high power fashion CEO. She had power, she had wealth, she had influence. She had a, a house in Rancho Santa Fe. She also had a, a house and an apartment in a high rise in, in Manhattan, the Upper West Side. And she had a house in Paris where she's from. So she's doing all right. The slave girl, on the other hand, is on the other end financially. She is powerless, oppressed, and exploited. She has been claimed as, as property and used over and over and over again to make money for men who have enslaved her. Like a 17, it's all too common in San Diego, like a 17-year-old girl getting pimped out on Craigslist from a motel in Oceanside by the local MS-13. And the jailer, he's not rich like Lydia, but it, you know, he's not despondent like, uh, the, or destitute like the slave girl. He's a, he's a solid, blue-collar, middle-class ex-GI. He lives in a 30-year-old single-family home in an old suburb by Felicita Park. Got a pickup truck and fishing boat and a giant flagpole on his front yard. These people, these three, could not be more different than each other. And they're, they're different rationally also. 
The, the way they think and the way uh, they investigate, the way they process things. Now, I'm told that, that uh, different people learn in three different ways. There's cognitive, intuitive, and concrete relational. I imagine Lydia being a, a cognitive learner, learning from arguments and discussions and reflection and reading. You know, give me evidence. And they tend to be more academic types. Lydia learns from uh, discussions and what's a, what's a Bible discussion, teaching with Q&A. Maybe some of you here are, are like Lydia, yeah? I imagine the slave girl being a, an intuitive uh, learner, learning from experience and, and greatly influenced by powerful encounters and, and feelings and, 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 and flashing insights, maybe more artistic and, and creative. Maybe that's more you. And I imagine the jailer being a, a concrete, rational learner. Show me. I got I to gotta see it practically. They are rubber meets the road, nuts and bolts type of people. They are skeptical of the elites, and they're skeptical of emotion, down to earth, practical. That's the way to go. Maybe you identify more with that guy. And then these three different are different spiritually. Lydia seems to be empty spiritually. Uh, she's made it in the world's eyes. She's successful in her business. Uh, a great achievement for anyone, but it was even more difficult in that culture if you were a woman. And it says Lydia in verse 14 was a worshiper of God, a, a convert to Judaism, even though that she was a, a Gentile. And, and any Gentile who would leave their roots and seek God outside of their family and outside of the community would be empty. Uh, she succeeded in her profession. She, she was wealthy and respected, but she knew that something was missing. And the slave girl, she was absolutely in despair spiritually. I mean, she's out of control. In verse 16, it says that she had a spirit of divination for fortune-telling. And, and I learned, I never knew this before, that a, a, a literal translation says that we met a girl with the spirit of a python. I never heard that before. A serpent. In Delphi, in Greece, there was a famous temple of Apollos where the oracle of Delphi lived, and he made pronouncements and predictions about the future, and the temple where he lived was said to be guarded by a python. And so in those days, if someone uh, was like this girl, you know, kind of manic and, and talking in different voices and made predictions, then the people said that, that they had a spirit of a python. And her parents couldn't handle her. And she ended up in slavery. Verse 17, she followed Paul crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. And Paul would remember that phrase, Most High God. From Isaiah 14, the exact expression the devil used when he spoke enviously of God. When, when Lucifer becomes the devil, he says, I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne and I will make myself the most high. So this slave girl, she knows God, but she knows God through evil. And she is in total despair and completely hopeless. And then the jailer, he, he doesn't know God at all. 
I mean, Lydia knew something about God through the Old Testament. The slave girl knew something about God through evil. And here the jailer knows nothing about God with, with no interest in religion whatsoever. So, I mean, that paints pretty, pretty a vivid picture. Three people, totally different, ethnically, economically, rationally, spiritually. And yet, God reaches each of them. If you're taking notes, that's your second point. God reaches each of them. And he comes after each of them in different ways. Ways that are personalized to who they are and where they are. God comes to Lydia through her mind, comes to the slave girl through her heart, and comes to the jailer through, through practical experiences. Now look at Lydia. She has been studying the Bible, but, but she was confused. She knew that she was supposed to obey God, but, but she was confused because she also knew about the sacrifices in Scripture that somehow someone would be a sacrifice, a substitute uh, for her. So she kind of picked up on that, but only vaguely. She was trying to save herself or, or get the life that she thought that she needed uh, through her own morality, through her own obedience, through her own performance, and it left her empty. So Paul shows up and gives her a Bible lesson. And what happened? Verse 14, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. And a, a literal translation would be more like, The Lord opened her heart to get it. To get what? Well, Paul would show her that every substitute in the Old Testament, every hero, every champion, every slain lamb points to Jesus. He shows her that Jesus is the substitute that she's been reading about in the Old Testament, that she's been looking for, that this Jesus lived the life that, that we should have lived, and he perfectly obeyed the law, and then he went to the cross and died the death that we should have died for our sins, and then Lydia got it. Her, her emptiness was over. Her heart was filled with love and appreciation and wonder for, for Jesus. God approached her with a Bible study. Biblical truth, arguments, discussion. And then there's the slave girl. She's wild. She is out of her mind. And so Paul doesn't say, hey, 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 simmer down, simmer down. Let's have a Bible study. He doesn't do that with her, does he? Verse 17, she followed Paul crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You know, unlike Lydia, she actually knew that Jesus was the way of salvation, but she hated him. Now, why is that? If she knew that he was the way of salvation, I, I'm not totally sure why or how to explain it, but I've seen this over and over and over again in our day. I've talked to so many people who, they are just hurting. They are just miserable. They have been sucker punched in the back of the head by life, and they are just crushed by suffering. And they are absolutely furious with God. And they will acknowledge that, that, that relief is found in Jesus, but they're just too angry from the pain. And they'll say, I just don't know that I can trust God. And then, so they seek relief in ways that enslave them even more. I see this on a regular basis. 
And this leads us to the jailer. You know, when the slave owners realized that their income stream had dried up, they provoked a race riot. The authorities have Paul and Silas beaten with billy clubs. They send him to prison and tell the jailer to guard them carefully, but but he gets excessive. He puts them in stocks designed to be a a form of, of torture where your legs would be stretched out as far as possible and then locked into place. And it caused extreme painful strain and, and, and cramps. And, and, and you know what? He wasn't even told to do that. He's just a brutal, angry, racist man. But then God confronts him with the shocking testimony of lives that were radically changed by the gospel. First, first, the jailer, here's Paul and Silas, singing songs in the night. These men have been arrested, beaten, thrown in jail, tortured. Tomorrow they could, they could die. I just, I just saw again uh, a couple nights ago that footage of, of Rodney King just getting hammered relentlessly. It was like that. And then after he goes to the hospital, these got, got beaten like Rodney King and they get thrown in a dungeon in this torturous, shackled contraption. And now they're singing? <laughs> Songs of joy in the middle of the night? And he's never heard anything like that. And then secondly, some, something so, so powerful descended upon that jail that it opened the gates and, 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 and loosed the chains and caused a, a great earthquake. And the jailer woke up and thought the prisoners had escaped. And, and so he draws his sword and he's about to kill himself. Why was he about? Why was he going to do that? Well, the law said that if you lose a prisoner, you lose your life. So he was about to kill himself when Paul shouted out, Stop! Don't do it! We're all here! They they all stayed. Here is this this guard, this prison guard, who brutalized these prisoners. He runs in, finds himself in the middle of this prison, surrounded by prisoners, and all of the, the jails are open. What normally happens in a situation like that, right? He'd be torn to pieces. But they all stayed in their cell. He rushes to Paul and Silas in verse 30 and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? I mean, he knew his life was in their hands, and he saw that these guys returned good for his evil. And it just blew him away. This is a very practical, concrete guy. I mean, he has never seen a joy like this. He's never seen love like this. And he wants, he wants what Paul and Silas have. He wants to live the way that they lived. I mean, he's never seen a joy so deep that it sings in the darkness. A love so strong that it does good to people who've done evil to them. And he says, what do I got to do to have what you have? Three very different people, and God reaches 
each of them. And he comes after them in three different ways, ways tailored to who they are. And yet in each case, he comes after them with the gospel. Because as different as we all look on the outside, we're all more alike than we think. That person you think, God, he's never going to come to you. You are more like that person than you think. You know, the slave girl was not the only slave. Lydia was a slave, and the jailer was a slave too. The Bible says, uh, this is your first sub-point under this third one, that we all live for something. We all look to something for our meaning in life. And so often, it is not God, it's not King Jesus and his kingdom and his call in our life. It's always, most of the time, we, we, we are tempted with something else to find meaning and significance. Something that is our bottom line, our non-negotiable, our ultimate core value. And you know what? It could be good things like career, possessions. You know, it could be romance, peers, achievement, your appearance. It could be a good cause. It could be, you know, moral character. It could be religion, sports, marriage, children, friendships. Combination of any of those things. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Lydia lived for success. When I make it to the top, then I'll be happy. If I live more life, then I'll, I'll be okay. And the jailer, he lived for honor, right? When I fulfilled my responsibility, then I'll be satisfied. We all live for something. And that means that we're all slaves. That's your second subpoint there. Whatever you live for will control you, whether you think so or not. It enslaves us with obsession since you know we have to have it and we stay awake at night thinking about uh, about that guilt if we if we fail to achieve it anger if someone blocks it from us fear if it's threatened you know despair if we lose it and if we get it we're left empty Lydia was a slave driven to achievement but it left her empty the jailer was a slave and you know what lots of jail, lots of jailers lost prisoners but they didn't kill themselves they ran away or they pleaded for, for mercy. Why, why does he try to kill himself? He was a slave to honor. The one thing that gave him self-esteem was gone. Have you experienced that? One thing you were looking to, for, looking toward or looking for to, to, bring, to make your life okay and then it was gone? Didn't work out like the way you thought? And then you don't know who you are anymore? We all live for something. Something will control you. The question is, who will be your master? What will be your master? Well, here's what you need. Here's what we all need. We all need Jesus to be our true master. Now listen, you know, don't brush that off because you've heard me say that a million times. Listen, right? Only, only Jesus is worthy of our service. All other masters are frauds. If you serve them, they raise the bar. They are never satisfied. If you fail them, they condemn you and they suck the life out of you. And yet we keep going back. Lydia reached her goals but was empty. The jailer, he, he failed and wanted to kill himself. Paul and Silas had the only master who forgives when you fail and gives you joy, even if you're 
tortured and lose everything and it's all taken away. It is an indestructible joy. That's what we have in Jesus. That's what we have in the hope of the gospel and his promises. Do you believe that? Do you know what this means? Do you know what we learn? We learn that the gospel can change anyone. Becoming a Christian is not a function of nationality, class, ethnicity, race. Christianity is not just for the ambitious. It is not just for the impressed. Christianity is not just for the rich. It's not just for the poor. Christianity is not just for Americans. It's not just for third world countries. Christianity is not just for conservatives, not just for liberals. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the gospel brings people together like nothing else can. You know, when I visited the Kabira slum in Nairobi, um, I didn't feel like I belonged there. Imagine that. But then I met some local Christians. <laughs> it, oh man, you need to go to the Kabira slum sometime and meet some other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because as out of place as you feel, Surrounded by people who are nothing like me. You meet some Christians, and then there's a camaraderie from having the same king of the same kingdom. And you know what? And, and, and here in Escondido, you know, I've been here almost five years, I think. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from closer to the border, closer to the uh, downtown city and, and national city. And, and uh, Escondido, it's, it's diverse, but I realize that Escondido kind of quietly segregates itself. That's just been my observation. That's what I see over and over again. And yet I see crossover among Christians. At least potential, more potential for it. Paul, the, he, he used to be uh, proud to be an, uh, an elite religious male leader looking down on women, slaves, and Gentiles. But then he met Jesus. And everything changed. And he started planting churches among vastly different cultures, among different people around the Mediterranean. And, and he considered them to be his family, to be his brothers, to be his sisters. That right there is the power of the gospel. And then finally, we learn that the gospel is the solution that we need. Whatever else is going on in your life that is dark, whatever else is going on in your life that is, that is painful, only the gospel can make you sing in the darkness. And you know why? Because if you get the gospel, if, if you know who Jesus is and what he has done and what his promises are, and you see the track record of evidences of God's grace in your life, you know that if you have absolutely nothing that this world has to offer, but you have Jesus, you know that you have everything. 
Everything. That means that you can suffer great pain and you can suffer great loss and still be able to sing in the darkness. In fact, when you are singing in the darkness, it's probably the only time you have the perspective you need to press on. Nothing gives you relief like worshiping God for his grace. And guess what? When you get that, when that, like, when that has a profound impact on your heart and life, and you find that you have a joy indestructible regardless of what's going on in your life, guess what? God uses you, works through you to draw people to himself. To draw people into his grace. Thomas Chalmers, I'll finish with uh, this. He's a prom- uh, Thomas Chalmers was a prominent Scottish uh, minister of the early 1800s and he says, the only way you feel like you're enslaved to a master, right? Where your heart longs off after something that is enslaving you. He says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection or master is by the expulsive power of a new one. Meaning when you understand the love of Christ and you find that indestructible joy, other masters will be, that enslave you will be driven from your heart. So how do we come to know and understand and experience God's love? You know, maybe some of you, a few of you here this morning are just exploring Christianity, trying to figure out, you know, what it's all about. Maybe, I don't know, maybe right now you, you're just bored with life and so you chase satisfaction but it leaves you empty. And then you try to numb the emptiness but you've become miserable. And if you're honest, you feel like you're in slavery. Maybe you hate your life right now because you feel like a loser. And you want true relief and you want true joy. How does that happen? Well, Paul gets to the heart of it when he says to the jail in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That means trusting Jesus to be your greatest joy. Trusting Jesus to be the source of true life and in, 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 in especially in a broken world. Trusting that Jesus lived a perfect life and gave you credit for his perfect life. That that Jesus died on the cross under the wrath of God in your place. That, That Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death and eternal judgment so that you could have eternal life with Christ starting right here, right now. Jesus is the only master who, if you serve him, he rewards you. And if you fail him, forgives you. Trust him today to be the only master worthy of your life and you will be free. Maybe some of you who are Christians this morning realize that you aren't relating to people in a Christ-centered way. You've uh, adopted an us-versus-them mentality. You look at people or whole groups of people who are suffering by the hand of the evil one, people who are enslaved by the evil one, as if they themselves were the evil one. 
You don't view them as people who, who need to be blessed. People who, who need to be blessed with deliverance. People who need to be blessed with grace. People who need to be blessed with the love of God as you have been. Remember Christ's love for you in, on the cross. If, if Christ is central, if he is your true master, he will change your attitude toward others, people who are far different than you and don't believe the same things as you do. So what is your master? What are you living for? What are you serving? What is controlling you? There's only one master worthy of your love. Only one master who can forgive you of your sin. Only one master who can give you true, lasting significance and satisfaction. Bask in that. And you will find your heart strangely warmed and you will find to your surprise that, that, that through him you are loving others as Christ loved you. And God will work through your changed life to reach all kinds of different people and bring them into his kingdom for his glory. God wants to work through you. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace because we are so desperate for it. We cannot control our world. We can't control even our own lives because we serve so often other masters. We look to them to give us what we think we need and it enslaves us even more. Give us eyes to see that. That Jesus is the only one worthy of our love. The only one worthy of our lives. The only one who can fulfill us. God, I pray that you would uh, make that more real to us. If that were real to us, everything we do would be for you and for your glory. We would not be apathetic. We would love to obey you. We would love to sense your presence. We would be filled with an indestructible joy and compelled to worship you. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that, that if there is anybody here this morning that has not trusted you, or maybe even consciously withholding their trust, that you give them eyes to see, to see you, the truth of who you are and what you've done, and warm their hearts. Fill their hearts with a love for you and a devotion to you, knowing that you are the only one who is truly trustworthy. God, for those of us who are Christians and those of us who have forgotten your grace and have become ungracious toward others, would you forgive us? Enable us to 
repent from that. God, I pray that you would make us gracious towards others and that you would enable us to represent you well to our neighbors in word and deed. We pray that you would use us in that. We pray that that you would make us to be a, a blessing to our city. To see our our neighborhoods and our cities renewed. We pray these things in your name.